All right. <clears throat> Here we go. <clears throat> Hopefully not coronavirus. Every time <laughs> every time I cough now, it's paranoia. It's terrible. <laughs> Hi everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Victor Major of Velocite Bicycles to our show. And uh, Victor is uh, as innovative as pretty much as any of our guests have been in the past. And uh, I know Andrew and I are very excited to have him on the show. Uh, to give us a sense of what uh, Velocite is all about and uh, the specific products that we're gonna talk about today, I'm gonna turn it over to Victor. and. Uh, Turn the mic to him. Um, hi, good morning. Uh, yes, uh, I'm Victor, and I run uh, Velocity Bikes and um, our um, a wheel and rim brand van. Um, I did not really hear all of the question, but I'm assuming uh, it's uh, asking me to give some background as to um, who we are and what, what we do and what makes us different. Well, the initial premise of uh, our company is to... Um, deliver exactly what we promise in our product descriptions. If we say something's going to uh, be fast, um, we try to make it fast. Uh, if we say, uh, for example, a wheel is going to handle well or uh, be easy to use in um, the target conditions, uh, we make sure that that is the case. Um, my, my background is not consumer marketing. My original training was in science, so um, perhaps our messages are not as flowery or pretty as uh, some of the more um, <laughs> customer-focused uh, brands, but we, but we do aim to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. I think that's such an important part of, of really selling any product these days because there's so much noise out there in terms of what goes on in marketing and seeing someone who's genuine and honest like yourself, um, that means so much to me as a customer, knowing that you're delivering the proper information, you're delivering your best guess or not best guess, but the, the best tested results and the best product to, to the end user. So I think that's something that will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Yeah. And Andrew and I have, on a number of occasions, given uh, given flack to the companies that will publish what we consider to be fairly meaningless aerodynamics data that has no context to it. And uh, as I'm sure you appreciate, Victor, and probably our, our listeners do as well, there is a lot of marketing hype around there these days. And uh, cutting through that noise is uh, is not an easy thing to do. No, that's right. Uh, we, we, well, I, we... Um, and others in a company, but I, it's a personal struggle for me is, uh, uh, was and still is how to describe a product because all the language has already been used by others. Uh, but it makes it really difficult for us to, um, to say that, no, but, but guys, we are telling you the truth. <laughs> yes, you might have heard this before, but, but our words actually mean what, what we're trying to say. But it's really difficult to rephrase or paraphrase to distinguish our messaging from, from anybody else's because everything's been claimed already. 
Um, so that, that is a bit of a frustration. Um, and that's, I guess, where the consumer marketing comes into force, in that you can penetrate the noise through uh, advertising, sponsorships, uh, uh, pretty glossy brochures, uh, uh, excellent reviews for your products, uh, things like that. And most of those we, we cannot access uh, due to the sheer expense and the amount of uh, noise that we need to cut through. But I think there's more of a place in today's market for someone like yourself who's just honest about their performance. Um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, it was all marketing, but people are starting to realize that there's a lot of smaller brands now who offer this kind of level of maybe not customization, but level of detail and insight into how they're designing something. So it's, um, I would say it, it's more accepted than it used to be, at least from my perspective. It was something to do with um, people perhaps being more uh, aware of um, how the products come about. Uh, maybe there's more awareness now of who controls the engineering, who controls the manufacturing. Um, but the, the negative side of thing is that there is a segment of messaging or, or, or customers that believe that every product is the same. So both are not entirely correct. Um, and there is uh, still a quite a bit of engineering that goes into product design and manufacturing, but perhaps not as much as uh, many of the brands uh, claim. So in terms of different processes that distinguish you, and I would almost say that this is as good of marketing, but very honest marketing as some of the, the fluff that you see from other companies, but you introduce technologies or design methodologies um, that are very new in the industry and very cutting edge. Um, so a couple of them, for example, would be filament winding. Uh, and that's what initially got our attention from you, um, as well as some AI-assisted design. And um, you've been very open on your website as well about some of the, the CAE tools that you use for the, the, the development process. So um, maybe why don't you walk us through how you would develop a bike from the very initial concept to, um, to something that's manufactured and, and built for the end customer? Okay. Well, uh, you mentioned a bike, uh, so let's, let's, uh, let, let me walk you through what happened when, we, uh, when I designed our air road bike, the sign. Um, that, that came about as a from my desire, again, to deliver an aero road bike that is actually aero and suited for a general road uh, riding versus time trial or, or a triathlon. Um, that implied several ergonomic requirements. Uh, for example, having a uh, comfort comfort built in right from the design for, uh, from the very beginning um, and also to solve the aerodynamics at the speeds and types of use that a road rider or road bike user would experience. And one of the key elements to that was uh, to integrate the water bottle into the airflow because nobody yet, uh, nobody rides a bike without hydrating. Um, and uh, there was there were no bikes uh, available at the time that did a justice to integrating uh, water bottles into the airflow of, uh, of, a, of a complete bike. There were some early attempts in um, making a trailing edge of a down tube square and making claims that this is what uh, made um, air uh, water bottle um, become part of the airflow. 
Um, we tested those using our CFD tools and found that no, that's not entirely the case. And um, after um, several months of work and iterations and simulations, we developed the first concave down tube that is designed to integrate water bottles into the airflow. So basically our approach or my approach to design was purely functional. So what ended up is uh, entirely functional uh, rather than uh, optics driven uh, bicycle frame that did a really good job and was a groundbreaking frame at a time that's been copied <laughs> quite, quite a bit since, uh, uh, especially with regard to integrating water bottles into the airflow itself. Now, later, if you ask me about how we go about uh, designing rims, I can tell you more about uh, manufacturing technologies, such as the filament winding tech. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good place to jump off to because originally we, uh, as as Andrew mentioned, that was the uh, that was the the element that piqued our interest in having this conversation. And our our last interviewee, uh, Corey from Cognoscenti Wheel Building in Toronto here. He spoke very highly of, uh, of Venn Wheels, which is your your wheel brand and the filament winding technology. And uh, everyone listening to our show, no doubt is well familiar and most likely has used some form of carbon fiber aerodynamic wheels. And uh, typically, they've been manufactured in the the traditional sense, which is you know using sheets of uh, carbon fiber and uh, layers of those sheets with uh, resin in between, impregnating them to hold the whole thing together. So, take us through and start. Assume that we have that our listeners don't know what filament winding is. Can you explain the process and explain how you use it to make your rims, please? Yes. Yes. The other passion that I have is um, composites, uh, specifically carbon fiber composites. Um, and that is the name give, given to a material that we all refer to as carbon. Um, but the technical term is um, CFRP, <laughs> carbon fiber reinforced plastic. Um, now, carbon, or carbon fiber composites are uh, a tricky material to work with. Um, they are the carbon fibers themselves are only strength in one, are only strong and primarily stiff in one direction. So uh, how you line up the fibers is very important. Um, and how you stack them is very important in, in order to create a um, laminate structure that handles the forces to the extent that you want them to be handled in terms of uh, strength and stiffness. The problem with uh, carbon fiber when it comes to manufacturing it, uh, manufacturing products out of it, is that if your uh, alignment or if your direction of the fibers to where, as you lay them up is not what you think it is, because uh, most layer processes that make bicycle rims are manual, meaning if there's somebody, there's a worker laying down bits of carbon fiber fabric into a mold or onto a preform, if that alignment is not optimal, you will get entirely different properties for your finished product. In bike rims, that's most often visible in a big weight variation from rim to rim. Um, with wheel builders, 
and they notice uh, poor quality manufacturing uh, in that when they tension the rim, uh, the spoke tensions cannot be equalized correctly. They need to um, they need to um, deviate more than um, they would expect in order to get a truly balanced and round wheel. So a way to solve this um, is either to get more specialized workforce, so it is possible to make really high-end manually laid up carbon fiber parts, but that means paying more, and nobody really wants to pay more for, uh, or not enough people want to pay more for the product. So that is not generally a, a direction that innovation is um, is heading in. Um, the second way to handle it, and that was what I wanted to do, um, is to automate the process of layout to make sure that a machine does all the difficult part. It lays up all the fibers in the directions that I want them to and that they are laid up the same way for every product, for every rim that you make. You not have a deviation that means that some rims are great, some rims and some rims are not so great. I'll take a breath now. <laughs> so. That's an excellent introduction, right? And so uh, you're, you know, you're outlining one one of the main reasons why filament winding is so attractive is that that it's a very re- repeatable and reliable yeah. process. So yeah. you know that you're you know what you're getting. And I think evidence of this is the fact that uh, I, I believe it was either Boeing or Airbus. They have a maybe not quite the same process, but they use a, a CNC, a computer controlled layup for the wings so that they have a continuous fiber running uh, maybe 10 or 15 meters long. And they have a much better control over the process. And you would hope that the airline industry uh, is putting that kind of effort into things. Uh, Although recent evidence may show that it's not always the case. (laughs) That was software. There was was multiple factors, but I would not blame the composites for that. The composites... No, no. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, what you said, yes, exactly right. Uh, Boeing is using what's called automated tape layer for ATL or AFP, Automated Fiber Placement. It's a big robot on a big gantry that lays up fiber onto a gigantic uh, mold for a wing. Uh, now, that is very, very good process, and it uh, definitely makes parts that are fantastic. However, they cost a lot. And those systems that they have in place are not suitable for a sporting goods industry because we cannot afford to ask the customers to pay us as much as we need to get paid in order to use those technologies. So it brings us back to filament winding. Filament winding itself is a very low-tech process, um, and it means that um, it's been in use for a long time, since 1940s, in fact, and it is very well understood. Um, it's been used for um, in sporting goods. It's been used for a long time to make um, carbon fiber golf golf shafts, uh, fishing rod shafts. Um, before us, there were some people making uh, tubes for bicycle frame, uh, tube to tube, or not a tube to tube, sorry, lug construction, lug construction uh, bicycle frames where the tubes were made with filament winding. Our previous factory that um, we were directly in control of, we were also making seat posts. But nobody before us made uh, bicycle rims using filament winding. 
and I, it's difficult for me to describe the process and over the over over just by talking about it. But um, the benefits of what we did was it allowed us to lay up rims very quickly and consistently. So every rim, when tensioned up, performed exactly the same. Um, we had some of the easiest rims to build using our original process. Um, and we kept the costs very low because we used uh, uh, what's called wet layup. Um, we, um, we would pass bundles of uh, or basically a tape of carbon fiber through a vat of glue, which this happens to be epoxy resin. So the fiber, dry fiber, was wetted just before it was being wound on the mandrel. This kept uh, costs really low, but the downside of this uh, is um, wet resin is sensitive to um, environment, uh, environmental changes, uh, humidity and temperature, the viscosity of the resin changes. So sometimes uh, we, we were not even able to make the rims if the resin got too viscous. And it was more difficult to control the resin content. And the optimal resin content for bike rims or sporting goods is up to 40%. So the cost was a great um, benefit, as was uniformity of the layup. But the problem with wet layup was that <clears throat> we could not make rims at all times. And sometimes we, uh, we did not arrive to resin content. That was uh, what we wanted. So we now have a different process, but I'll let you ask for clarification before I launch into that, into a current range, if you have any questions. Uh, what I would love is for, uh, I think this is a super cool technology and I remember seeing a video of it somewhere and uh, maybe this is something that you provide to me after the fact, but if you can email me a link to a video that you think demonstrates your process well, if you have one of your process, if it's not proprietary, that would be ideal or just something similar okay. similar that we can uh, link to in our show notes to show our listeners. No, no problem. I can share a generic process. I cannot share ours because it's still proprietary. Of course. Um, there are there are similar processes, so I'll try to find something that's as close, but not too close. So a couple words that stuck out for me there were consistent yes. and fast and cheaper. Um, yeah. Usually they don't co like they don't go together. Usually you don't get a cheaper product that is more consistent. Um, but this process, it's really uh, it's a it's a win win situation in a lot of cases where you improve a lot of things. But I assume there are some compromises too. Um, so one of them that you mentioned was the uh, the resin getting the, the proper environmental conditions for the resin. But yes. um, well, you found a solution for that. But uh, what are some of the other um, uh, compromises that you had to make in the development of the process? Um, <clears throat> the resin issue was the biggest one. We fixed that. However, uh, I'll explain later what that fix entailed, and uh, that kind of brings your equation a bit closer to a uh, steady state. Um, but um, uh, the other problem that we had was that our, that previous process still uh, required a lot of manual handling. So yes, we could lay up the rim structures uh, on a machine and have a really, really, really good uh, layup uh, without deviation, it was, and it looked spectacular. Um, the, the laid up parts had to be moved from the machine to the mold by hand and individual parts had to be co-cured um, after being assembled into molds by hand 
So we also had an introduction of error during downstream processing because the process of making the finished product was still uh, very much labor intensive. So it was not a perfect solution. It just solved the first, the most difficult part, and that is how do we lay something up quickly, cheaply, and accurately. So I can segue into what what the full solution was to um, and what what I think that's I think that's where we're headed. Yeah, it sounds like yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll just keep going. If if I rant on for too long, feel free to uh, just yell. No stop. I've. I've had no desire to stop you so far. It's been very interesting. <laughs> okay. So uh, this brings us to the present, our uh, current VAR, VAR technology. Um, so um, the resin issue was actually more significant than, um, than desired, and we could not fix it, not, not in China. That's where the, the rooms are being made. Um, we'd need, we would have had to upgrade the entire manufacturing facility and install either an environmental control cabinet um, for the big machines or environmentally control the entire factory. Neither of these two were feasible. So we had to um, more or less start again and um, not continue making rims at that factory, but we partnered instead with a different factory uh, with some technology transfer. Um, And this factory um, is using what's called a prepreg carbon fiber. To, to film and wind our rooms. So what prepare carbon fiber means is that it's no longer dry fiber being uh, dipped through a vat of liquid resin before being applied to the mandrel. Um, it's a fiber that already has, or cloth that already has resin put on it. And this is what's normally used now um, for most of the manufacturer, including the Boeing ATL uh, wing maker and bicycle frame manufacturers uh, throughout Asia and elsewhere, we all use uh, prepreg carbon fiber. <clears throat> the main benefit of prepreg versus wet layup or dry fiber through a vat of resin layup is that we can precisely control the amount of resin if the prepregging process is good. And it is more resistant to environmental changes because the prepreg uh, carbon fiber lives inside a fridge. It's only taken out of the refrigeration um, a few hours before uh, it's being used to achieve, um, to, to reach a uh, room temperature because you need it to be tacky. Um, so it does not depend on how cold or hot the environment is. We just need it to, little, to be a little bit tacky because subs, subsequent curing is not affected by the environment. We're not applying resin during manufacturing. It's already there. However, the problem with this is that it's much more expensive to work with, especially with filament winding. So what we have to do is um, take a big sheet of pre-impregnated UD carbon fiber that's wound in a gigantic bobbin and then slice it into uh, ribbons, uh, into tapes. Uh, The process itself is called slit tape winding. So um, instead of having nice and easy bobbins of dry carbon fiber tape to use uh, with winding, we now have to um, prepreg the carbon fiber sheet and then slice it into small tapes, ribbons, in order to wind it. 
but the benefit is that we can make rooms whenever we want. Uh, we're not affected by the environment. Uh, we don't have to worry about resin content anymore. Um, and overall, uh, our financial equation and position has improved, even though it costs us more to make and it costs you more to buy from us. Um, everyone is actually happier um, because the quality that we achieve is amazing uh, and it does not vary. Every ring is the same. It doesn't matter when we make it. Um, so that's the upside and that's the major selling point, I guess, that um, other companies try to position themselves in the market as to why you should pay more. For us, it's clear you should pay more now for the new rooms because they're better. And that's the simple, simple truth. Right. You mentioned other companies, Victor, and that's where my next question is going to go. Um, given the advantages and the potential cost savings over manual techniques, at least, that you outlined, why isn't everybody making filament wound rims? Um, well, um, okay. Um, there's, there's still- this is a little bit. This is me asking you to speculate a little bit because you're not everybody. You're just you're you're Ven. But uh, I'm curious what your thoughts yes. on this are. Uh, well, top of mind uh, is availability of technology is not widespread. This is proprietary. So for everyone to use the same technology, everyone would need to move to the same factory. Okay. Uh, or somebody else, some other factory would need to either develop their own process or infringe upon somebody's IP. Um, I have not seen any other factors besides our current one using filament winding, so I don't think infringement is something that uh, is going to be happening. I have seen our current factory increasing in capacity um, by a lot, so they are anticipating and they are seeing more demand. So you may, in fact, see not everybody, but the increasing number of uh, companies offering similar uh, technology. The second reason why you may not see why they're, who what else is using filament winding or derivative of what we're using is because they don't want to tell you. Hmm. Because of the source of supply is limited basically to the single factory. If other brands started telling you, oh, we are using filament wound uh, rims, um, the consumers would know exactly where they're coming from because nobody else is making them. Uh, okay. And for brands that rely on um, intangible benefits of a product, meaning nice stories, uh, that's a bad thing. Yes. No. That makes that's a great answer. That makes a perf- that makes perfect sense. It levels the playing field to an extent, and it makes it very difficult for some brands to explain why they're better. If historically they relied on claims of superior technology, I think that's that's a great example, though, of how the whole IP um, protection industry should work because um, a lot of times you hear about patents, but you never hear about uh, how they actually restrict things. Um, But having this one factory control the entire supply and then being on good terms with them or being in ownership of the patent or licensing it um, gives you an advantage. And if you're, if you're paying to maintain the IP or if you're the one responsible for inventing it, then you should be granted some kind of benefit from that. So it is good to see the system working properly in that case. Well, yes and no, it, it, it works, works, works well if you're in a position to defend the IP. That's true. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the past, we haven't been. We had a company in USA 
take our entire website and copy every claim, every image, everything we had and launch their own film and wound rims, which made me uh, made me laugh until I saw that people were taking them seriously. And then I just stopped caring because I cannot do anything to stop it. Then we had an Italian company take my actual patent for the down tube I described before for the sign bike and apply to their bikes. Again, I couldn't do anything about that because they belong to one of the largest uh, consumer goods companies in the world. There is no way we could take them to court. Then we had a Swiss company um, who wanted to license this from us. In the end, they decided not to because it's cheaper to ignore us than to pay us licensing fees. So IP only works <clears throat> if you can defend it. And in the case of this factory that is uh, making our rims, they can because they're local to China and the industry there is not that big. And you do not want to uh, annoy the wrong people. So it's not so much the law, it's the, it's the culture that's protecting the IP. And also they don't show it to anybody. You cannot go and visit. You cannot see what they're doing. Just like I cannot and will not tell you how we do our filament wiring. <laughs> not telling anyone is the best protection. Actually, there's there's a really good lesson buried in there. And that's, I guess, the, the dark side of IP ownership or even IP trolling. Um, and this is a whole other topic that I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on. But uh, a good example, at least in Canada, was the case of RIM being sued by this small company that just purchased up IP. And they were armed with a bunch of lawyers but had no engineers. Um, so this company, I think they got a settlement of like $500 million um, for a patent that they didn't invent. They just bought from someone else. And they they were going after Research in Motion or BlackBerry for ownership yes. of this. and. They they did get a, a very very sizable settlement out of it, and it uh, it had a big impact on the local industry here. Um, yeah. But knowing that it's usually the the side with the, the the most lawyers or the biggest army that wins, that's that is the downside of IP protection. It's it's the war of attrition. Mm -hmm. It is not the lawyer never loses. We'd have to pay our lawyer uh, whether they won the case for us or not. We have to pay them to uh, get our patents registered. We have to pay them to send the letters. They didn't do anything beyond that because it became an impossible situation for us to sustain the drain. So I, I'm not a big supporter of the way the IP laws are set up. They are heavily discriminatory towards the actual inventor and very much in favor of the infringer. So best solution is secrecy. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> but it's easier to do with manufacturing methods than it is with the product, which can be seen, copied, and invented by somebody else, and there's nothing you can do about it. I almost feel guilty asking any more questions now. <laughs> <laughs> you can, but it's not going to tell you all the answers. That, that is all. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's just, Victor's just going to say no, Andrew. <laughs> so, Victor, while we're still talking about wheels, I have uh, I have one further question. So, we we talked about uh, competitors, but uh, in terms of the benefit to the end user, now you talked about reliability, and I want you to 
maybe expand a little bit on that as to why that's useful to the end user? Because for some of our listeners, it may be obvious, but maybe for others, it may not be because, you know, maybe they don't really care about your process and then it saves you money and then it's, you always get the same rim, you know, quality. Why does that matter to the end user? Number one, and are there any other benefits over uh, manually laid up wheels that you see from your process? I actually don't think it matters to everybody. Uh, there are many good rims that still work. It's not that we are now making the only carbon rim on the planet that uh, that works well. Sure. It will matter to those people that um, that would value um, a uh, intrinsic qualities of what they've got. So it's like saying is uh, is a Kia uh, as good as a BMW or a Mercedes, uh, and most likely it is. Really, uh, they they do the same job in the end. Uh, that may even be more reliable. So maybe not a good example. Because <laughs> 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 it's reliable, but it, it, it is different. It's uh, in in terms of process. So for example, wheel builders love our rims. Uh, they they build it uh, in record time into a wheel. They spend very little effort in truing the wheel in uh, achieving the right spoke tensions. And for them, which actually wheel builders are our biggest customers, we don't sell as many wheels as we sell rings by far. Uh, and for, for wheel builders, uh, they feel fantastic because they know that their brand improves if they use our rims. They have absolute faith in when they build a wheel using our rims, that their customer will be very, very happy. Um, so they are able to achieve the best metrics that predict the longevity of a good wheel set when they use our wheels. So it means it will stay true. You will have no unexpected um, or premature nipple or spoke failures. Uh, it will be responsive. It will not uh, detension itself when you inflate the tire. Um, basic hygiene factors that make wheel builders happy are, are mm-hmm. best catered for by our rims so far. This is their feedback to us. So as to the end user, if they trust a wheel builder, um, I believe that they will selectively choose wheels with our rings because their wheel builder is happy. So I guess it's in general answer, but of course there are specific reasons why they should, uh, why end users should use our rings and not only because of filament winding. We spend a lot of time on uh, developing good aerodynamic solutions. So the, the, the ring that um, started this. The, the, uh, we'll, we'll get into that after we finish the manufacturing. That's another story. Yeah, don't, we're yeah. <laughs> we're, we're going to rein you in. You're kind of, you're <laughs> you're dancing a little bit further ahead. Uh, this does explain why Corey spoke so highly of you, though. And uh, for something like wheel building, which I didn't appreciate until we had this conversation with Corey, um, it's not something you can see directly, but maybe you feel or you don't feel um, in the case of not having a wheel fail, like Corey had explained a few times. Uh, but it's it's something that uh, it's just that peace of mind of having a properly built wheel. I think that um, that would go a long way towards providing this for people from what you're saying. Yes, uh, and I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure it's, uh, it's, uh, it can be felt by the end user, but it would be really hard to, to explain until we start getting into specific rim and wheel models, which is, uh, you know, there yet. <laughs> so that, that it all ties into a complete, into a complete product. But at, at a bottom line, if you're buying a rim made with filament winding or automated process, 
it will be built, um, it, the rim itself will be constructed so that it is uniform throughout its circumference. There is, there is no variation, there is no less stiff spots, and there is no uh, run out. Uh, the rim itself um, is going to be both flat and round, even without being built into a wheel. So the, the entire wheel system built with our rims is very happy. It is balanced. There is no spokes pulling harder in one spot than the other. So generally, that should mean that the wheel should work better. That that makes perfect sense, and it, it, it I think in, intuitively makes sense to me that if the if a rim is easier to build up and lace up and tension in the you know in the initial wheel building process, that it's going to serve longer and it's going to give the user fewer problems. You know, like you say with uh, coming out of true, I think we've all as uh, as cyclists have had wheels go out of true, and not to say that yours won't, but perhaps mm-hmm. well, not perhaps, but I I bet that a wheel that starts out wanting to be true is going to stay true longer than a wheel that starts out needing to be forced into trueness. A banana-shaped wheel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I think of traditional carbon fiber layups, the the thought or the image that comes to mind is a kid putting together a paper mache model. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's uh, filament winding just brings that the science to it and takes the yes. art out of it. Yes. Um, where yes, there were people who could do it very well, but um, based on my experience with paper mache, it doesn't always look good. <laughs> so we shouldn't hire you as a as a uh, as a carbon layup artist. <laughs> no, that's not a, not, not a good reference. But in a, in essence, you're you're right. Uh, composite, composites manufactured using a hand layup is not a very a very high high complexity job. Um, you are stacking sheets of something into something else. Of course, the entire process to get a finished product does involve a lot of know-how and it, it is a bit more complicated overall. But the overall process of hand layup is not that much different, correct? And doing it by machine is a far better way to do it and the only way forward, in fact. I don't think we'll be seeing too much hand layup in anything. Um, in the next uh, 15, 20 years at most, maybe sooner. So I put this question to you when we originally corresponded, Victor, but um, you know, given the, the obvious benefits of building wheels using filament winding, what uh, other bike components or frame bits we, can we make using this process? Because you had indicated that you can't build a complete frame using this technology. So can you explain a little bit, can you talk about why that is and what, parts of the bicycle other than the wheels may lend themselves to this process. Yes, definitely. Um, filament winding is a fantastic process to use uh, for uh, open geometry or uniform geometry parts. What that means is that if you want to uh, make a tube, filament winding is fantastic. You basically just ply your thread up and down a solid object and you end up with a round tube which you can then cook and make it solid and it's done super quickly and it's extremely high quality product so anything tube like can be made with filament winding and made into a bike part um, as i mentioned before um, you can make bicycle tubes uh, for uh, for a lot of construction bike frames that can be bought now 
Uh, I mentioned uh, before that we made the seed posts uh, for, for Giant uh, using Chrome Wine. Uh, just, uh, our fishing rods are not for biking, but say handlebars are a possibility. Anything round is a really good type of geometry for filament winding. Rims, not so much. Uh, that took some work. Um, and rims are not a single piece. We, we had to assemble complete bicycle rim out of components. Mm-hmm. Because you cannot cannot wind a cavity, um, so rims require special adaptation of filament winding, but they are possible, as we demonstrated. Um, making complete frames is not the best way to apply filament winding yet, because there's no easy way to pass the filament yeah. through the closed triangles, front or rear, or or both, in free space. So I, ideally, it would look fantastic in a science fiction movie because if you just wind this frame in free <laughs> space in one piece of fiber, that <laughs> would be awesome. But in practice, uh, that is slow. It is possible, but it's slow and perhaps not the best way to use the technology. There are other automated m- methods that could do this faster um, and possibly just as well, theoretically. So, filament winding would be mostly limited to open geometry, uniform type parts, rims being the exception. Um, complete monocoque filament wound frames, maybe sometime in the future. Cool. So, are there some bike geometries now, like the, um, for example, the, the Savello super bikes, um, would they be possible to wind using this method? Like the Z-shaped bikes, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. They, they can. The open geometry frames, such, such as the Z or Y frames, um, yes, there's no captive surfaces there. Um, so with some work, the Cervello could be wound. Um, uh, a modified Ventum could be wound. Um, there, there, there are possibilities but we're still speaking if we want to optimize this process and make the most of it so we don't end up having to join the tubes there's still a difficulty of having a really complex mandrel hanging in free space or attached to our articulated robot base that would rotate right because with wheels you're saying you obviously have to make it out of you know multiple Multiple parts parts. and then join them together yes yes but open geometries, such as those uh, non-diamond, non uh, non-closed diamond uh, frames, they, they are windable, yes. But again, I alluded to it before, there are other processes that are automated that could make them faster and cheaper and maybe just as good. It, it does sound like there's kind of a, a manufacturing revolution that's on the, on the horizon here, where probably starting with smaller components and easier components, they'll be built using these advanced manufacturing techniques and then that'll slowly work its way up to the more complex parts as we understand the process better and the limitations and the possibilities for um, variations of that process so it's it's a pretty exciting time i think it's definitely and it's a two two pronged uh, approach um from the top we have uh, highly automated systems that make uh, composite parts for aerospace industry they're hugely expensive. And then I'd call it from the bottom, but maybe more from a mass market perspective, we have the sporting goods that is making, uh, increasingly making parts using automation uh, at a lower or very low price points, considering what, we, what we're getting. 
And I guess they may meet somewhere in the middle and we'll see all kinds of composite parts being made using automation and entering the mainstream, uh, not not just at the top and, and at, uh, at the sporting goods level. So yeah, I, I agree with that. And a similar analogy, I think, is looking actually at the 3D printer market where 15 years ago, um, the technology was extremely expensive, not very common, but now you can buy one for next mm -hmm. to nothing and mm -hmm. you can have it sitting on your desk building something as you're, <laughs> as you're having a conversation like this. Yes, yes. So it's... It's come a long way in not a lot of time, so I would suspect the same kind of um, the same kind of control and automation is going to appear in the the composite industry. We we have another project underway, but it's off off topic. Um, with the, dealing with thermoplastics and continuous fiber placement, hopefully it'll be uh, something that I can talk about by the end of the year. Uh, so I completely agree with you. Uh, and I believe that the revolution in manufacturing actually started with desktop printing or desktop publishing with printers. That's what turned this entire concept of being able to do something tangible yourself on its on its head. And 3D printers are an evolution, and what we're working on is an evolution on a 3D printer. So definitely exciting times ahead. All right. Well, I won't ask more questions because I'm super sensitive with IP topics now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. I let's uh, let's turn our attention a little bit to the kind of the the second su super exciting component of this conversation, and that is that uh, from Corey again, our, our mutual friend. We learned, um, Victor, that at least one of your rim designs was done not by human engineers, but by um, a machine learning algorithm. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. And then I know Andrew's got some some very detailed <laughs> questions to dive deeper into this world that I know less than I should know about. So first, uh, a, a good a good place to start, I think, would be to talk about the, the specific rim that was done this way and then uh, kind of what you what you found, uh, you know, what you discovered by uh, going through this process. Uh, the rim that we made using the... Uh hands-off approach, literally, uh, just deploying an AI system with some boundaries, is uh, the Venvar 77 range that we have available in uh, rim brake and disc brake versions. Um, I was always fascinated with the uh, possibilities of AI when it comes to uh, its potential to discover new solutions that people cannot think of. Um, uh, so the from very beginning, this was intended to be an unguided process where we give the parameters with fixed points. Uh, we told it how deep the rims have to be because that's the mold size and that's the weight that we wanted to achieve. So we told it that it has to be 77 millimeters deep. We knew we wanted to have a 21 millimeter internal width so we can secure standard tires to it. And I wanted to have a 25 millimeter diameter leading edge that would roughly correspond to uh, some of the stiffer uh, 23 or 25 millimeter bicycle tires. So okay. we, we gave it some uh, boundaries to start with um, and let it run. Um, and what we got uh, was a uh, unworkable solution because the rim that was achieving ultimate results in terms of lowest drag 
uh, was 42 millimeters wide. Um, so uh, we had to make an executive decision that not many motocross or downhill you riders... You had to rein in the AI at that point, right? <laughs> <laughs> we thought, oh, no, I don't think this would fit inside a bicycle frame. Uh, but it basically tells you, it told us what we suspected and everybody knows is that none of the bike rings are aerodynamic. Nothing, nothing, nothing actually works the way it should because we don't have enough space uh, for the airflow to, to develop, to be contained properly. We have compromises when it comes to uh, fit and weight. Because you can imagine our current rim weight is about 630 grams. Um, at the 42 millimeter wide would be over 700. Hmm. Uh, so even the weight, let alone the physically not being able to fit the rim inside a frame, uh, would be a significant problem. So we started again, and we told it to constrain the maximum width to 30 millimeters. Uh, I felt that, that that number was not scientifically derived. I have to say this was a random number that I chose because I decided, okay, the surface area that this would result in would give us an ex market acceptable um, weight and it would fit inside most modern bicycle frames. Um, some of the rim brake frames may struggle because their calipers would not be able to uh, accommodate, but that's the frame's fault, <laughs> not ours. <laughs> Customers can look into changing the brake. It's, it's, it's the frame's fault. It's funny. When we had Corey on the show, he was uh, he was telling us about how he's super keen to get an order for one of these because he wants to build it, and just because that's you know that's what makes Corey fun. Um, and then yes. immediately, I I'm sitting, I so I record in my little basement office slash training space, and my uh, my specialized shiv is hanging just behind me. So I pulled out my calipers and started measuring, started measuring <laughs> the spacing between my brake pads. I'm like, oh, I don't. I don't think I can fit it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is twenty nine millimeters at the braking surface, so not not thirty. So it narrows down a bit. The widest point is a bit of a way back, uh, so it would clear the stays. But uh, with brakes, uh, you may not make it, or maybe make it with the low profile, low profile brake pads. I was gonna say I need some old brake pads. Yeah, or the the we used to well occasionally depends on how how many we uh, we can order. We used to offer low profile pads, and I think Shimano sells low profile pads as well that may increase the clearance sufficiently. I yeah, I've heard of them existing. Yeah, so I've got a question, and this is maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, Andrew and I talk about this all the time when we were looking at at bikes that we think are aerodynamic or not aerodynamic, and uh, and I'm totally going to steal this, you know, <laughs> this thought of his. But uh, he's on the show, so he can give me crap for it later. But uh, you know, when it comes to the front wheel and the fork interface, he always talks about you can either do it one of two ways. You can either have a skinny fork that doesn't let any airflow or very, well, minimal airflow between the fork and the rim and a really wide stance fork, which we're seeing on like the new Shiv uh, disc bike or the new uh, uh, Team GB track bike, super wide forks with a lot of room for air to flow around the rim. So when you're looking at a, at a quite a wide rim like yours is, probably as wide as, well, the, the AI made it as wide as possible, as wide as you allowed it to basically, um, are you, is this designed for 
uh, bike with a narrow crown fork, which a lot of the the rim brake bikes would be, or for a really wide stance fork like the Shiv with uh, a lot of clearance around the rim. Um, How did you take that into account? I mean, I, I didn't because our philosophy uh, when we were designing frames for ourselves and for others is to increase the clearance. There is no there's no benefit in, in narrow spacing between wheels and forks and a frame. It just does not work. Mm -hmm. uh, it creates a very high pressure zones. Um, and increase or change in pressure gradient immediately separates the airflow. And then you're hoping that it gets reattached to the surface calmly downstream. And on a bicycle, and that doesn't happen because, for example, um, there is no benefit to having a narrow fork and a crown that's hugging the wheel. You cannot save that situation. That's, that's a bad design choice. Hmm. Um, and then let's say when the airflow makes it through there somehow, you cannot reattach that to the down tube because your front wheel is always moving. So perhaps in some really rare situations on a velodrome where you do not move your handlebars, you may get reattachment, so a narrow and close, or, or in the front wheel close to the down tube may provide aerodynamic benefit. Out in the open, where everything is completely dynamic, it just does not work. Um, so um, I'm all for wide stance. The Team GB bike is fantastic in my mind. Um, the, the, the Shiv uh, is on, a, on the right track. And it basically supports our own research. I'm not saying it's better than theirs, but they are in alignment. Just be wide <laughs> is, is the answer. A lot of these design choices have been really opened up by the fact that uh, rim brakes have started to disappear a little bit more, and disc brakes just give so much more opportunity for creative freedom. Yes, 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 definitely. Uh, I mean, it's possible to go to go wider even with rims because it can have those lumps on a fork and a rim brakes um, but again the, the, the specific answer to, to the question is I did not consider the fork design Got it. I, I believe if you can if you can go wide wide spacing lot of clearance go for it you'll go faster yeah, sorry for hijacking it. That uh, your explanation that you were going through. So if we can let's if we can jump back to the uh, what you what you learned okay. from the AI assisted design or AI. Okay. Uh, so specifically, what the AI told us was that um, we didn't actually learn anything new, which was a bit disappointing because I wanted, as I said in the beginning, I wanted to see if people. If humans, human engineers got, got it wrong, if there is a better solution than what we assume um, is the best looking shape uh, for bicycle speeds. We know that um, at high speeds, like let's say airplanes, the, the, the aerodynamics work, they demonstrably work because planes fly well. <laughs> yes. But to, to, you know, at the low speed uh, area where the bicycles operate, um, I was hoping there was some a scope for um, absolute innovation or introducing something bizarrely new that shows that, hey, guys, we had it wrong. This pretzel shape here works much, much better than your uh, airfoil. <laughs> but, but unfortunately, uh, we didn't get that. We, uh, we got um, a shape that is 
not, not really standard if you look closely, but resembles what's already been in use for a great many years in a bicycle land. It's a, it's a normal looking extended laminar flow airfoil. Um, it does what it does really, really well, but it looks more or less conventional. During the development process, we had some intermediary results that were that made me look made me hopeful that we would discover something unique. Uh, we had a concave airfoil uh, with blunt edges uh, that had good results, but it was nowhere near as good as the conventional looking final result that we ended up making. If nothing else, though, this intermediate design. It uh, demonstrates the fact that the AI was exploring the full design space and that it was actually yes, it, trying to look at these, or it was successfully looking at these designs that a human designer wouldn't have anticipated or even chased after. So That's, that's a good point. I take it as a given now um, because that was always our intent. We were never constraining it to a set number of uh, iterations or points. Our entire uh, pool of options was in excess of 50,000 uh, variables. Uh, so it had really, really high, uh, de- high number, high degree of freedom uh, to investigate anything, um, including the bizarre shapes. Uh, but as, a, as, a, as I already mentioned, they turned out not to be as good as what we ended up with. So one of the interesting things about computer-assisted design that I find is that even though you're letting the computer do the design, it's highly dependent on how skilled the operator is at constraining the model. Um, And a good example of this, not that it went wrong, but a good example of this is that um, the 40 millimeter rim width that you came up with at one point, um, where if you don't constrain it properly, you may end up with something that, that converges to a solution that's not not practical. Um, technically, we call it a sanity check. Yes. So <laughs> in any kind of modeling environment, um, you have to perform sanity checks to see, okay, um, given the narrow parameters that the optimization or AI system has to work with, the result may be fantastic. But does it fit into the known universe? <laughs> if the answer is no, <laughs> then we have, to, we have to adjust our parameters. And I can't tell you the number of times I've done hand calculations to validate the trends I'm seeing with uh, with computer like CFD simulations. So I completely believe in using hand calculations or just some kind of sanity check. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. you can't, you cannot, because yes, it's 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 a, it's a pitfall if you if you focus too narrowly. Oh, and then introduce your own bias. So no, we, we were aware of that. So this has obviously been used for rim design and you're, you're experienced and you have this AI background um, and the ability to design with it. What kind of opportunities do you see in the future with AI-based designs? Yeah, we, uh, my original desire to uh, embark on this AI-driven design was to make a uh, bicycle frame or uh, a bike frame uh, designed to work with uh, components and with the rider. And it works within the currently acceptable consumer space. So not a recumbent. Optimizing a recumbent would be uh, very easy. If us be dealing with uh, fully fared in space, it's a, it's a cockpit designs rather than a uh, 
open frame, open wheeler, weird upright machine that we all call a bicycle. Um, so with the bicycle, though, the, the, there is no software that can do it yet. Um, no, not properly. If we constrain it down to a few variables, sure, we can play with the fit, with the length of tubes. Um, but you would not be able to uh, change the profiles uh, to accommodate uh, the rider's legs or increase the stance of the fork automatically, like the Team GB did, in order to create a fairing uh, for the rider's legs. Um, so we cannot yet think of a way to deploy AI in designing a complete bicycle frame or bicycle system. But I believe that in the future, um, like anything that is currently impossible, it will be possible. And by that stage, I'm also hoping that we'll be able to uh, manufacture the frame on site, for example, in the shop um, where the rider goes to uh, get fitted and get measured. Um, they would get simulated and they would get the bike that is theirs, not in just in size, but in aerodynamics. And it may sound like a utter science fiction. <laughs> yeah, you're, I like you're talking this, Star Trek yeah. now. But, but most of the things, yeah, most, most of the things that we are take, taking as normal now, even this chat, was a Star Trek episode 10, 20 yep. years ago. The one side effect of this is it's going to kill the used bike market, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think we're talking about incrementals here. It's not going to make or break anybody. For example, in our internal work, and with other people's data, it's not like we are unique in this, but the most difference you can achieve on a bike is uh, through a rider positioning. Uh, you alter your shoulder position or your forearm position a little bit, and your drag goes either way up or way down. Nothing else changed. So bike bike aerodynamics will be incremental versus what a rider can do just by uh, sitting better. You're preaching to the choir here, Victor. This is a, a very, very common topic of conversation with uh, Andrew and myself. Yeah, yeah. and that's just what, what we find. I mean, data, data tells us that. I'd love to say, no, our wheel is going to make you 10 times faster. It won't. <laughs> It just won't <laughs> fix your position. And when your position works, get a better wheel set. <laughs> then get a better frame. And that's the kind of a sequence of priorities. But the fit on the bike is, is going to make the most difference. This kind of reminds me of an example I heard from uh, the race car industry, actually, where they said the easiest way to lose 10 kilograms of weight off the car is to make your driver go on a diet. Yeah. So yeah. Um, the driver is really the, the easiest thing to change in all of this, or the, uh, yeah, just the rider and the shape of the body and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a bit of bikes is different because we are also the most exposed to the air. We're huge, sitting perched on top of something small. So our contribution to uh, the overall performance is the greatest. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree, of course. We are gonna, I'm going to ask you a question that I didn't put in the email, but I'm curious what your thoughts are on this uh, because we've been asking this to a lot of people. But uh, uh, dangerous, yeah, dangerous watch out. Uh, no, this one's not controversial. But um, rim brake versus disc brake, uh, obviously the industry is kind of trending disc. Um, you mentioned that you like the fact that it allows for wider fork stance. Uh, any other thoughts in this discussion? Um, well, I'm a technocrat. 
I'll basically just look at the tangibles. And to me, there is nothing um, that I can prioritize in my mind um, that would swing the benefit towards rim brakes. I, 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 I am sure I'm missing something here, uh, some minute of um, why rim brakes should continue to exist, but I can't think of it. It also makes my job a lot harder if I have to consider rim braking sure. when I design the rims or manufacturing methods. One other thing I want to kill is the hook in the rim. I want us to go hookless. Oh, interesting. Okay. Just sharing that. Just sharing that now. The hook is a nightmare joke. It's horrible, and I wanted to die. High stress concentration Sorry, over no. there. <laughs> It's just really terrible to, to manufacture. But rim brake, I'm not a fan. When I when I rode my first disc brake bike, it was amazing. And the biggest difference to me was the cornering ability. I could accelerate and I could brake late and counter steer into a corner as if I'm driving or riding a motorbike. It is brilliant. Well, I think it would be exciting to ride a motorbike along with you based on your description there. <laughs> it, it definitely is as long as you can survive it because the feeling of control feeling of control and the power is, is amazing but going downhill on a disc brake bike gets you really close but the late braking I cannot overstate how reassuring it is to know that you can control your speed perfectly and then control your approach to the corner perfectly it is it is it is very very different to a, a rim brake system. That's something that cyclists don't often talk about. Um, you get a little bit of discussion about brake modulation, but um, I used to do a bit of car racing, um, and having good control and good feel over the brakes is really the difference between being able to pass someone into a corner and getting past going into a corner. So. There you go. There you yeah, go. it's uh, same thing. Yeah, exactly. So, and I, I felt the same thing the first time I rode a, a disc brake bike, where just the extra control you've got uh, and the extra feel—it's almost like you can feel the road through your fingers. Yeah, yeah, and it's just the excitement to me that added a joy to my ride. It basically, comes down to that. It made me feel happier, and because I'm not competitive, I, I don't race much at all now but it increased my happiness. To me, that was the biggest change. And that's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of us are, none of us on this call, on this call are getting paid to ride our bicycles. So <laughs> well, if you can be happier <laughs> doing it. I'm all for disc brakes. It makes the manufacturing simpler and it makes me happier as a rider. That's actually a good advertising line. Forget about aerody aerodynamics. This, uh, this wheel set makes you happier. Yes. There you go. You can you can have that one. You can have that one on the house, Victor. We we won't we won't charge you a consulting marketing consulting fee for that one. Nice. Thank you. Well, listen, Victor. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. This was a really interesting conversation. We Andrew and I are kind of a similarly minded. Uh, you know, humans who, who like good design and, and and good conversations about design and innovation. And uh, this was a great one because there, you, what you guys are doing um, is legitimately different than what other people are doing in the space. And we've talked about the fact that uh, wheels are feeling a little bit stale lately. That there's not much new or or interesting or uh, or different that's that's happening in that space. So it's really 
Okay. It's really nice to have a conversation with somebody who's doing something that other people are not. I've never been happier to be proven wrong about something. <laughs> what were you proven <laughs> wrong about? Well, about wheels becoming stale. Oh, that's anything right. but I can reassure you there's a lot more going on. Well, we're just going to have to, uh, you know, we're just going to have to uh, put a pin in that, I suppose, for now, and then ha get you back on the show when you are able to speak about what these yes. mysterious new things are. <laughs> sure. Yeah, this is a this was a fantastic discussion. This is one I was really looking forward to. Um, it kind of caught us off guard a little bit in terms of just getting the introduction from Corey recently, but um, I'm glad we had it. This is very interesting to know the advanced technology that's going on in the manufacturing world and the design world right now. Okay. Well, I'm glad I'm glad you you feel like that, and I hope your listeners uh, will, uh, will will have enjoyed it too. Victor, if uh, our listeners are interested in checking out your products, both your bicycle frames and your wheels, where can they do that? Uh, we have two websites. Uh, I'll, um, I'll share the links uh, on the email that I sent with the process. Perfect. Uh, one is uh, for Velocity Bikes and Frames, and one is specifically for van rims and wheels. Yes, and I'll, uh, listeners, I'll, of course, put that up in our show notes so you can check them out. And uh, for a local plug, because we are, you know, in the middle of this pandemic, uh, it is extra important to support your local businesses, I, I, I find. And uh, if you're in the Toronto area and are curious about Venn wheels specifically, uh, Corey of Cognoscenti will build you up a stellar set with these rims uh, if you give him the opportunity. So I know he'd love to do that for you. And uh, I'll put his contact, uh, even though it was in our last episode, but I'll put his contact information in this email as well, or in this in the, in the show notes for this show as well. So thanks again uh, for, for joining us and uh, all of you listening at home, do give us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, if you have any questions for either Andrew or myself or any of our awesome guests that we've had on the show lately, we can always get those answered. Thank you for having me and uh, have a good day. 